Hi friends, my name is Kevin. Welcome to the Via Media Podcast. The issue of gun violence continues to be a persistent problem in the United States. There are simply no words for the tragic loss of life that we witness on a regular basis, made worse by the divisive and polarized politics around what governments ought to do. The various appeals to cliched platitudes like, we don't have a gun problem, we have a heart problem, are profoundly unhelpful. And the convenient and oftentimes spurious interpretations of the Second Amendment distract us from getting a real understanding that could promote real transformation. Mike Martin is the founder and executive director of Raw Tools, an organization that provides a safe process by which people can donate their guns to be transformed into gardening tools. In Isaiah chapter 2, the phrase, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, is a description of a time when there will be no more war or violence upon the land. Raw Tools is making that vision a reality through their blacksmithing work, but also through resourcing communities with nonviolence training, storytelling, and theological education. Mike is also the co-author of Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence, a comprehensive telling of the history of the gun industry, the beliefs and philosophies of gun culture, an explanation of the development of Second Amendment interpretations, and a both-and political vision that requires legislation and spiritual transformation. It is an incredibly thorough analysis and helpful guide to explicate how we got here and what we can do about it. In this conversation, we will cover all of this and more, all in an effort to chart a way forward towards making violence extinct. Here is my conversation with Mike Martin. Well, good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another Via Media conversation. We're an organization that is uh, intending to inspire a curious and hopeful humanity. We're having conversations that matter, that are really critical and important. I want to take a quick moment to thank Spark Church. Thank you so much for your partnership in this very important conversation. I'm so grateful for your uh, help and assistance in all this. Tonight we have with us Mike Martin, uh, the co-author of Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence, co-authored with Shane Claiborne. For those of you who are watching live, please check out the Slido event number down below, 329-3502. We will be taking those questions uh, later on in the evening. Mike, Thank you so much for accepting our invitation. We're so uh, incredibly humbled and honored that you would join us this evening. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here. Yeah. Um, tonight's event is um, starting off on a sober note because we already have news. I mean, it, this particular subject is incredibly painful. It's heart wrenching. I, I feel always at a loss for words whenever we come to this particular subject. So. You're going to be my uh, therapist in some particular ways and help us with some words and try to get our brains wrapped around this. But we're coming off of just the most recent of what seems to be a never ending slew of uh, shootings in America. So the University of Virginia uh, and our uh, hearts are just, again, broken uh, with that. And then um, just barely an hour ago, I got an email from a uh, good friend who uh, wrote that uh, her niece lost Uh, her son to um, a shooting. And she writes in this email, this senseless loss rests heavily on my heart, especially on heels of our discussion last week and ahead of tonight's session on beating guns. This increases my resolve to be involved in ongoing discussions and actions toward increasing awareness and driving change. Thank you for being a place and voice shining light in dark places. 
And I wanted to make sure that I said that to you, Mike. Um, I feel like this this book and the work that you're doing with Raw Tools um, is exactly that, a voice shining light in dark places. Um, and so I want to extrapolate, I want to tear apart and learn as much as we can your history, the philosophy, the work that you're doing, the reasons why, and then how we can continue to um, advance this uh, revolution of transforming uh, this violence culture into a culture of peace. So let's start with a basic introduction. Um, <laughs> this was, uh, I think, going to be helpful for some, I, I think, some of the religious aspects. What, what is a Mennonite? And how did a Mennonite become a blacksmith? Can you give us a very short history uh, of your journey uh, in your religious journey and then towards this work of Raw Tools? And then, and then of course, I should probably ask, what is Raw Tools and what it, what is it that you do? Sure. Yeah. So uh, my parents are Mennonite. I'm what people would call an ethnic Mennonite, their parents and their parents before them. But I actually grew up in an evangelical church for the most part. Mm -hmm. So my youth, uh, my college, all in kind of a non-denominational space. And it wasn't until college that one of my professors encouraged me to kind of dig into my Anabaptist roots and see if that's something I still identify with as I move, was moving towards graduation, might find a, a youth pastor job. Um, so he kind of wanted to make sure I was checking all my boxes. And when I did that, um, I kind of rediscovered what I was born into. And it really motivated me towards um, leaning more into nonviolence, um, valuing uh, service. I think a lot of our, our traditions of, of Christianity value service a lot. Um, and then also kind of this idea of separation in church and state, almost to with a heavy, heavy emphasis on separation. You might, a lot of people think of Mennonite and hear Amish. They're very separatist. Mennonite's different, but we're both Anabaptists. Mm. Um, so that's kind of a quick, quick capsule there. Um, I learned how to blacksmith because of raw tools. Um, my dad and I learned together. Uh, he has, uh, family business that had someone who would work on his equipment when it broke, who was a blacksmith. And we floated this idea of, Hey, can we make a garden tool out of a gun barrel? And he was, he was very anxious to teach us this trade of blacksmithing. And um, my dad and I are, are fairly handy, but even without that, uh, it's a, a lot more accessible than people think, which we can talk about. We'll, we'll talk about that later about its impact on the ministry. Um, but once we realized we could, make a gun into a garden tool and invite others in, uh, it just kind of snowballed from there. Hmm. And uh, yeah, and, and raw tools, we turn guns into garden tools. Uh, we in, initiate kind of discussions around trying to imagine if you didn't have a gun, how would you handle situations? So kind of nonviolence 101, we're really grounded in restorative justice and practices, um, de-escalation, mediation skills, um, and pushing people into that. And then once we kind of break that space, we want to identify the systemic influences that kind of encourage us to use violence in certain situations. Um, and then also the, the systemic change that we can make to try and curb those influences. And eventually, I mean, the goal would be to eliminate that influence, that we could create safe communities where violence isn't, isn't that kind of tempter that it is right now. Yeah, yeah. 
I, I think the holistic approach of what you're doing is just so unique. I mean, at least in the rhetoric that we see in the media and the news, especially left versus right and Republican versus Democrat is all about legislation. But your approach is very holistic, like everything that you just mentioned, nonviolence training. You're also participating in worship or liturgical aspects. Um, and this is, I think, let's get to the core of the philosophy of what drives you. On page 21, you write this incredible phrase, peace begins with the people. It is not politicians who lead the way to peace. It is the people of God who lead the politicians to peace. We will make violence extinct by refusing to kill. So um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to some of the other questions that I sent you, but what seems to be happening in your philosophy is that in a world that is so inundated with, you know, guns don't uh, kill people, people kill people, these phrases that are just kind of thrown around, and then we don't have a gun problem, we have a heart problem. It feels like you're doing a both and. You are, you, in this book, you have articulated the both and. Yes, we do have a gun problem, but we also have a heart problem, and it sounds like what Rod Tools is attempting to do both. Can you speak to kind of that philosophy of how both of those work out in, in the expressions of, of this work and ministry that you're doing? Yeah, I think they're connected when you talk about a certain section of anthropology, that's kind of popular name would be cyborg anthropology, that if I'm not holding anything, I'm capable of certain things. But if I'm holding a cell phone, I'm capable of even more things, or if I'm holding a pencil or pen. So naturally, if I'm holding a gun, both the gun and myself are capable of different things if we then if we weren't connected, right? Mm -hmm. Then if it was in a safe or somewhere else hiding in, in my nightstand. So I think all of that, the the material of the gun, but also the person who I am, I'm not a vacuum. So that gun exists in my hand in connection to everything I've experienced. So when you open and talk about the University of Virginia and the email you got everything that we're talking about here is connected to someone who's listening that has a distance from a trauma or a connection to a trauma or th or they've experienced it themselves and the more that we do these events inviting people into this process the more we hear people say i never realized that i i'm a survivor of gun violence because and they'll list off the event that they were either present for but didn't really know that that they were affected it at the level that they were. But then also, as we get even more to the surface, we hear about the gun problem, heart problem, and and we need both of those things. It's easy to kind of fall into this bumper sticker or Twitter space where you only get that limited amount of characters to talk about this. And this is one of those issues you really have to break down, get into the nuance, get into the context, and understand that gun violence in rural Oregon is different than gun violence in suburban Colorado is different than gun violence in urban New York City. So all these different places have these factors and we really need to listen to the people in those areas who've been affected by gun violence to help us lead the way forward. And it's very rarely that you hear someone say that that way forward is with a gun. Hmm. You mentioned that um, we, when we no longer train to annihilate fear, we we train to face it. Um, I, I agree that there's the cultural differences in the context are are pretty um, nuanced depending upon the ge geography and you know the society, the socioeconomics of of that. Fear seems to be a core central ethic 
core central impulse of humanity and sometimes an ethic that we leverage. Can you speak to what do you mean when you say train to face fear? I think it's it's that the training is kind of in the experience. And I'll use kind of when we're planning events, even this book tour, when people say um, that they want to host us, one of the first ever questions is, do you ever have a protest? Do you ever have, hmm. you know, kind of an, uh, a bad actor from the community at these things? And that's speaking from that fear and and really kind of starting to shed doubt on whether this process should happen. Um, but then, you know, and that, that was even within myself. I mean, I we had other people who had been in peace work for a long time in our city be kind of the filing agent address for the organization because I was... I had fear of people kind of coming to our door, uh, my personal house, uh, looking for to do something to us. I don't know. Um, now that I've done this more often, I'm less fearful about it, although that, that anxiety still hangs out every now and then. Um, but I think it's about taking that next best step. And one church um, that worked with us a couple of years ago, uh, we had that dialogue. Do we have armed security present while we host an event that is trying to send the message that arms don't keep us safer. And what eventually happened was this event came to fruition and it felt more like, like a, a high school car wash welcoming the community to get guns. Cause it was after a mass shooting in the community and they wanted to respond to that. But there was still this kind of fear that was holding back the ethos of what the event could be. And, and what, uh, kind of that mentality that everybody holds when they're when they're at that event. So something that could have paralyzed this church kind of decided to go at it together with multiple people, you know, their group of the church that they are, and be this corporate voice in their community that said, we're tired of this and we want to imagine a new way forward. And for them on that day, it was to, to have a buyback. And the pastor often says that every gun that came in, everybody who was there got a little taste of heaven. When we chopped it up, people who've been affected by gun violence helped cut up the guns. She'd ring a bell every time a handgun came in. There were posters, people holding posters. People from the Colorado Poor People's Campaign who were trained in mediators and de-escalators were present just in case something did happen. But it was such a beautiful space because that church decided to kind of face that fear or live into the life that they want to to be a part of despite what the world is telling them could possibly happen. Yeah, that's such a, an incredibly brave thing to do and brave and courageous being not kind of a, a, a posture, a chivalrous posture, but um, the willingness and the discipline to go to the other side of that. And that kind of training seems to be um, something that you, you can only get by going through that emotion um, of fear, you know? Yeah, there there's kind of this acceptance of a level of vulnerability that you have to be okay with. And I would also say that maybe not everybody in that church was ready for that. And that would be okay. We need to allow space for that too, that this church can move forward or any church can move forward or a people group can move forward knowing that some of them are struggling and that there might be something behind that, a legitimate yeah. trauma in the past that needs to be addressed and and shared with community so um it, it isn't to say that that just because you don't want to step into this scary space doesn't mean you aren't brave but it is to say that let's 
hold our fear together and not feel like we're all doing this by ourselves, which is what the pull of the, the gun industry is, is that you need this to be the individual you, you need to be. Uh, and we're going to get into that. I'm, I'm really looking forward to you uh, helping us understand kind of the, the recent history of the gun industry, the business end of it, and how it has created this very culture. I want to, before we get there, um, just kind of ask you on a very practical level, somebody um, spits back at you some sort of um, slogan or saying that is uh, on a particular political angle, guns don't kill people, people kill people, or I'm, I don't care, um, I'm terrified right now, I need to arm myself. What is your practical approach in those particular conversations? I mean, you've been holding these kinds of training sessions and uh, events all across the country. And I'm sure you run into people who are like, I, I, I'm still very much in disagreement with what you're trying to do here. I'm actually going to feel a lot better if I go out and purchase a gun and I continue to perpetuate kind of this uh, uh, culture and the, the existence of guns and stuff like that. What is your practical approach? Something that maybe we can take away because we're having these conversations as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think as, as the practical approach, if it's someone I don't have a relationship with, I'm going to test and see if this is one that do I have space to maintain this relationship and go down this road with that person or try and connect them to someone that we might have a mutual friend so that they can have that conversation if I don't feel, but from a practicality standpoint, I'm going to, you know, approach this very slowly. We're going to be in relationship together. We're going to commit to this from both ends. And this just comes from kind of restorative practices or dialogue 101. If you're going to hold a talking circle to talk about something, there's no time limit to that. And so I would enter into these spaces and this goes as practical as like, I'm going to post something about gun violence on my personal social media page today. I have to commit to moderating all the comments that are going to be coming in because one, because it's connected to the work that I do, but two, even if I disagree with someone, someone is watching how we relate to each other in that space. They don't care about the data points that either side is putting out there, but they do care about how the space is being held. And I would say that's just as important as trying to come up with that perfect response phrase, right? So start from that listening space, ask people what um, has led them to believe what they believe, and then start looking at statistics or real world examples. And both people will probably be able to put some of that forth. Um, and once you kind of get past that to that space, I lean into my Christian faith and what I believe Jesus calls us to. And if this person is, is also a Christian, then we move into that kind of next level of, of dialogue and ask, you know, is this, is this what it looks like to follow Jesus? Did dying on the cross uh, give us an example of, of um, what we like to say in the book too, is that we were taught not to kill for people, but to die for people. Mm. And that's the example that we see. So you can, it pulls you away from kind of that, that bumper sticker conversation back and forth. Yeah. If you yeah. start going down that road, that'll, that's the first sign that it's not going to work. It's not a healthy space. And you need to kind of reel yourself and each other back and say, maybe we need to do this over a meal because that'll slow a conversation down too. Yeah. We're incredibly inspired by that particular approach. The tagline for VIA is to inspire a curious and hopeful humanity. And that what you've just said is an exemplification of that curiosity. If you do a, doing a lot of listening and trying to find out where somebody's coming from and, and doing some common ground. Uh, before we get to the history, another question just came to mind, which is a footnote as you were talking about having those conversations over. Um, I was asking you before we went live about compassion fatigue 
and trauma fatigue. Can you speak to the idea, uh, the experience that many of us have in this work of just getting tired, wondering if we're ever going to make a difference? It was, it was a very palpable frustration after Sandy Hook when our government and seemingly the entire nation had an incredible uproar, but nothing actually materialized. Um, and these kinds of stories are happening, you know, again and again and again. Um, and you're in this work every day. So I was just wondering if we could put a footnote question on how to maintain a disciplined commitment to this work in light of constant frustration, constant, you know, uh, opposition, compassion fatigue, trauma fatigue, cynicism, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, one, I mean, hold on to the things that give you life, because at the end of the day, we're trying to take and affect something that is taking life from our world. And, and to let that take control of our, our everyday um, is really hard when you get into that space. I mean, I felt that deeply after Uvalde and Buffalo, um, that it, it felt like it was those two back to back within a week or so of each other. Um, I fell into that space. And so um, in, in that particular instance, it was an email from a survivor that we worked with who was just sending a random thank you about the work that we had done that helped that person. And that helped pull me out. And then I moved into one of the, th in the pandemic, I got a kayak. And so I just would get out on the water and that helped recenter me. So there's these horrible things that happen within our work, especially when they're deeply connected to the work, um, like another mass shooting. Mm. And it's great to remind ourselves of what gives us life. Mm. And sometimes that has to do with the work. Sometimes it's just me canceling meetings and staying in the shop and making tools out of guns. And uh, as Reverend Sharon Risher, who lost her mother in the Charleston church shootings um, says to beat the hell out of the gun that we have to push that hell away and make room for life in our, in our community, in our life, um, in our three foot circle, right? We often say like you can affect what's your, what the first degree of connection. So it might be people, it might be practices, but that's, that's how I deal with that. And it's, and sometimes it's a lot in one month and sometimes it's once a year, but, it definitely pops up and you, you're not really prepared for it. So it's good that to be not when you're not in that instance, to think of the things that you're going to do when it comes up, not unlike preparing for active violence. It's not always going to be a, a shooter, but it might be another form of violence that you have to prepare for and build habits to help moderate and mediate that situation. Mm. And sometimes it's with yourself. I love the idea that the work um, of justice and putting the world right is can, can feel sometimes platformed upon opposition. We are trying to fight against this thing, but you've also articulated, remember the thing that you're also fighting for, not just the thing that you're fighting against. And yeah, life is the thing that we are fighting for. And I mean, for crying out loud, I'm using the fight analogy uh, and verbiage and metaphor, uh, even when talking about this. So it's amazing how ingrained this is so yeah um, spiritual warfare yeah exactly i i mean we probably need to deconstruct the language um we yeah. i want to 
ask you about this history. You have you and Shane have written some incredible history here. Um, on page 47, you talk about figures like Buffalo uh, Bill, Billy the Kid, Bell Star, and Calamity Jane became American legends and went from lowbrow fiction to highbrow historical fact. Truth was the first casualty of our romanticism with guns. And then you articulate some of this Wild West and kind of the glamour of the cowboy. What is the truth of this mythology, Mike? Yeah, right after that, uh, what you read, there's another quote that talks about another person said that um, more people died in the cinema on those Saturday matinees than they did in the actual Wild Wild West. Mm. Right. That we have these two truths that we that we kind of lean into. One is that everybody was the John Wayne character, that the cowboy was this virtuous male figure, white guy that was going in to save the expanding settlers and colonialists in the American West. Uh, when in reality, the cowboy was more kind of that drunk guy on the weekends involved in domestic violence. Um, and that's not the story that we would ask. It, we have a, hero, a heroic vision of the cowboy of the West. And that's almost, almost antithetical to what the cowboy was in a historical space. And what prompted that shift and what was who who or what capitalized on that imagery? And I'm kind of leading the question. We're talking yeah. about the gun capitalists and the, the whole business culture. So speak to the development through some of that history. Um, you talk about war and uh, like Winchester and Colt really taking advantage of those opportunities, those cultural opportunities to make a buck. And you're actually incredibly generous um, I felt anyway to the gun manufacturers because you said, I mean, they weren't in it to for the for the production of killing people. They were in it to make money. So talk through a little bit of how this developed over time and then what kind of shifts and changes in the industry um, created this gun culture that we have, which is, I think, really helpful for understanding why we even have this culture in the first place. Yeah, there was a big shift in the mid-1800s in this that kind of coincided with the um, international conflict and the development of the gun industry within the United States. And two of the people we talk about uh, in the book, Samuel Colt and Eli Whitney, most people know of Eli Whitney as the person who developed the cotton gin, um, but he also kind of developed the um, mechanized process of making individual gun parts instead of one solid piece that you might see in like an, an older rifle. Um, and the combination of those led someone like Samuel Colt to go to the loser of whatever war America was fighting and said, this is why you lost. America had this this revolver and you didn't. You only had, you know, like a, a musket or or even, even a, a multi-fire musket. You know, there's different variations of that too that they were selling to the losers after they lost and pretty compellingly, right? And even indigenous people talked of the revolver as the spirit gun because it was taking life at levels that only you can imagine would happen from that spiritual realm, yeah. um, right? That you would that you would almost um, attach to things like a plague. This gun was having that effect on in the American West, and so. Uh, well, all over America, American South too. And 
so it's that kind of combination of one the development of automatic weapons or semi-automatic weapons and the development of the american market when there wasn't a war on Mm. so the war initially funded the gun industry right you'd make dozens of dozens of hundreds of guns a month but outside of war you might make two dozen guns two dozen guns a month for winchester like it was almost nothing one one person could do that in a week and so they needed to find ways to fill their market so they wouldn't have to shut down the gun lines and start making sewing machines or whatever else the other the other piece of machinery they were making so um, they created the gun market of the u.s and they did that by um, having some old advertisements which shane likes to make into into signs now cutting up old gun advertisements and and creating faith hope love peace out of them Um, but you would you would create these these heroes of the west right facing down the bear facing down the native american facing um, whatever that challenge was and then they moved it to uh, one of the bigger marketing campaigns in in business history in the american uh in the last 200 years was the boy plan where they targeted boys age 10 to 16 and made rifles just for them and so it started to create this want for something instead of a need for something mm-hmm. it used to be a need and they turned it into a want and so suddenly the the civilian market was offsetting the war market and then you get to 1900s and the modern firearm era begins yeah that's incredible you quote um pamela Hag Hag. Uh, am i pronouncing her name correctly um quoted a couple times in the book what once was needed now had to be loved um mm. there was uh there's also an additional um, conflict that exists in this development too. I mean, that's just an incredible um, shoot. I got too many questions. One, how much responsibility slash weight do you give to the industry for creating the culture versus the culture creating the industry? Because I feel like right now where we sit, it is there, the the culture and the industry are in bed together and they're kind of, you know, um, in, the, in this very symbiotic relationship, but the way in which you describe it, it feels like there's a, a fair amount of weight given to the industry for the development of the culture. Is that a fair assessment of your analysis? Yeah, I think so. Just because the dissemination of information at that time had to be industry centered, hmm. right? This isn't something that you could just kind of uh, manufacture from the grassroots. If you did, it might've looked similar to like the old school church traveling church revivals, right? Where this was, uh, flooding magazines and newspapers with advertisements, um, putting it along different, uh, you know, general stores, those kinds of places. So it was definitely something that was manufactured from within the industry and put out there, especially when you see that change from, from need to want or need to love, mm-hmm. as Pamela Haig says. Yeah, yeah. Um, the conflict that I read in your book was that there were some who were really concerned as to what this was actually going to do to the individual. Um, page 64, you write, some gun enthusiasts um, warned of the danger of firepower replacing bravery, even mocking mm-hmm. some of the modern guns by use of which an infamous coward could kill someone with a random ball from whence no one knew where it was shot. That was pretty striking to me. Um, I kind of have this sense that people who love guns are just, you know, they're they're all in. But to know that there was 
there was controversy or concern. And in some ways, that particular quote is in many ways prophetically analytical of what happens when you put a gun into your hands. Mm -hmm. um, can And you kind of touched on this earlier regarding fear and kind of the posture that we have. I mean, is there any more, can, can you give us any more perspective on that critique and tension that exists and how that has manifested itself in, in the promulgation of, of all this weaponry that we now have? Yeah, it's, it's interesting that that plays both on this idea of developing something that creates distance between me and my, um, I guess, whoever disagrees with me or whoever I'm in conflict with, right? That's what the, that's what they're talking about, that I can fling that ball, that bullet over a distance instead of meeting that person face to face. So in some ways, uh, it's almost the opposite message that you get now from the gun industry, right? That this makes yeah. you more of a man where the, this person who's saying like this gun enthusiast is saying, no, it makes you less of a yeah. man yeah. because you can't face your fears you have to get rid of it by killing your fear or what you think is that fear. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really pretty cutting. It, it says a lot. And to me, it's the same conversation right now that people have around drone technology, especially when it's attached to the military warfare. So it's interesting to see that coming out then, but you just don't hear it anymore. It's something that has been drowned out. And uh, a lot of that got drowned out in the 70s and 80s, as you see the narrative of the NRA change. Mm, yeah. Can you tease out that drone technology? I mean, uh, yeah. comment there. Yeah, I think you you get to this place where you have created, especially when you're talking about military and international warfare, you have to convince the nation that you represent that you are doing something that is moral and just. So therefore, you have to dehumanize something else or someone else to make them a target that is worthy of this, of a bomb or a bullet. And when we add a drone to that, you're further distancing those two people. You're, you're taking the relationship or any idea of a possible relationship between um, myself and another individual who's a part of a nation that we're at war with um, by introducing this technology that isn't taking anybody with it to perform this task. So it, it takes even another separation now it feels like you're not even pulling the trigger. You're pushing a button on this end somewhere, but you're right. not pulling the trigger with that person in sight like you like you are in what this person is talking about. I feel like this element of the conversation is so critically important it's from an anthropological, sociological perspective. The It's very Marshall McLuhan-esque that we make our tools and then our tools make us. Whatever mm. it is that we do, we produce, actually has a very significant psychological and social effect on who we are and how we see things. And yeah, um, these weapons create further distance and that distance diminishes our connection and our humanism and our humanity and that relationship with those. Um, okay, so the gun industry captivates the moment. They're looking for a buck. They're not necessarily looking to create an industry of, of killing, but they're, and, and it's really stunning to think about American industries going to the loser of American wars to sell more guns. That I mean, that's just kind of a stunning fact, I suppose. Uh, develops a culture through the advertising, the mythology of, uh, of all that, which means that the appeal to the Second Amendment was not a 
primary driver of the late 19th century, early 20th century development of this culture. True? Am I wrong? What's your analysis of the role of the Second Amendment in the rhetoric and in the ideology during this particular time? Because it certainly seems like a prominent, uh, prominent argument and appeal in our current day. And then we'll get to what really is the Second Amendment and how should we think about it? So let's start with some of the history of the role that the Second Amendment played in that particular time. Yeah, at that time, it was usually meant for militia would have been a much more common way to understand the use of firearms your and your kind of individual need to own one is if you were a part of a larger group that was tasked with the defense of something. And usually you see that, um, especially in the in the development of what we see now as law enforcement and slave patrols, um, you see that even in the first um, court cases dealing with Second Amendment rights and who gets to own the gun when um, when people of color start owning firearms. The first Supreme Court case was basically deciding, do people of color get to do this? Um, and Roxanne Dunbar-Artiz has a great book about that. Um, and and then you also see that when the Black Panthers come around too, right? That they're starting to have these patrols where they, they're basically legal observers with guns watching white cops pull over people of color and making sure that those police are abiding by the law and not doing anything. Yeah. And then you also, so then you start seeing things, Reagan would come out and say stuff about that. So you kind of see that throughout this history, but I think you, it's more of kind of like behind the curtain at first in some of this change in the 1800s, seeing this advertising, you aren't saying the second, you aren't seeing advertisement that says the second amendment means that your 12 year old should get a gun. Mm -hmm. You're seeing a 12 year old, want to be like the hero cowboy, right? That's what, sh that's what we see in those things. So it's, it is more of a modern development, but it is behind some of the other marketing. It's just not as blatant as it is now. Yeah. Okay. So over time, however, the second amendment becomes much more prominent in the rhetoric and, and in the argumentation. And then this was um, something that I thought was really critical because it was a, Supreme Court case in 2008, right? District of Columbia versus Heller. The quote here is, for 200 years, the courts interpreted the right to bear arms as a collective or state right. But in 2008, it became crystal clear in the District of Columbia versus Heller that the right to bear arms is an individual right and states cannot block it. Can you tell us more about this shift? I mean, that's a, a, a significant, I mean, 2008, this is fairly late, yeah. quote unquote, late in the game. Yeah, it's and it's also I think it's important to see this as something that was happening in the similar time frame that corporations were also seen as individuals. So there's right. this commodifying of individuals that's behind this, I believe. Um, but what it's 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 saying that it's it's trying to remove and let, let you talk about the Second Amendment from an individual space instead of that corporate malicious space. It wants to create that next level of that. Um, and also in that decision, like it's still saying that there are still limits within that, right? You still can't, it's been 14, 15 years since then. You still can't, you can't own uh, a grenade launcher or a rocket launcher or a fully automatic uh, firearm. That's still not as loud. So there are limits on what individuals can own. And that is still up for debate, right? We're still having that conversation 
about assault rifles. Is this something? And that's a gray area too. It's not easy to define assault rifle. We can look at it and see what we think is an assault rifle, but that doesn't make it that. There's a lot of pieces behind that, um, that especially people who want to make that move need to educate ourselves on that. And so there's this, it's that layered decision, but it is another win for um, the gun market to say, see, this is your right to love this if we want to go back to the previous conversation so that's kind of defining that it's not just something you need for this corporate militia group that's in the protection of maybe community property but it is also this individual right for you to do to do this on your own almost it's it almost falls short of kind of that deputization that we see happening in the recent abortion laws right it's saying that you can you are your own deputy that's another way for me to read this. Hmm. How much of the Supreme Court decision, I mean, it's supposed to be anti or, or non-politically or non-partisanly influenced, but I mean, you can imagine that the, the, the industry, the gun industry would have been lobbying and pushing and all that kind of stuff. I mean, in, in your understanding of that particular development, how much of the industry is still at play in pushing forward and advancing kind of these evolving interpretations of, of these laws that we have. Well, you can't disconnect them. It's entirely connected, almost all funded through NRA lobbyists, likely written by them as well. Um, and it's you cannot disconnect it. Yeah. It's it's not possible. Uh, to say otherwise is to is to just claim ignorance, in my view, that yeah. those those two go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, and it it's part of why we ground so much of what we do in the church, that we're part of something else that gets to have a different narrative. OK, so let's talk about that, because this seems to be a core and central aspect of the work that you do and the, the philosophical approach going back to the very beginning where not going to do this just through politicians and through you know uh mandates upon our legislation and our laws we're going to do this through the hearts of people um on page 182 you write this amazing line i love it just as there is a spiritual dimension to our adoration of guns that is a form of idolatry there is also a spiritual side to violence and our obsession with it we want to suggest that it is literally a form of demonic possession period, hang with us, period. I really appreciated that, hang with us. So uh, explain uh, your understanding slash interpretation slash provocation advocacy of demonic possession being an aspect of this adoration of guns and, and the spirit of violence. Yeah, I think it'll I'll approach it this way in language that I've used a lot more since we've written the book that's not in the book that I don't think we think enough about what it means to pull the trigger when our gun is pointed at someone else. We put so much heavy weight on the what if questions that were always asked. What if you walk in and something, someone's doing something horrible to your wife? Why wouldn't you use a gun to shoot that person? Why wouldn't you do whatever it is? And we can, we, we can save kind of like the spectrum of what pacifism and nonviolence is. That's, that's probably for another day, but we're sticking with gun ownership here. And when we, we put ourselves in the worst of the worst situation, instead of imagining how it got to that place, got to that situation in the first place, hmm. what are we doing along the way, building habits of community and neighborliness so that we get to meet each other with open arms instead of bearing arms? That's 
how do we reimagine what that road looks like? And when we are beat over the head constantly with this, a good guy with a gun is the only thing that can stop a bad person. I would say not just a bad person with a gun. I think that goes beyond just gun versus gun. Um, that it's a bad person doing a bad thing to someone that you love. The gun is the easy option. And once we have that gun on our hip or in our nightstand, uh, part of our brain or imagination stops thinking of different ways to deal with that because we feel we already have that solution. And in that way, it's yeah. that possession, right? It starts taking over your imagination. It starts taking over your how you develop your habits, how you discipline yourself to be, especially in our case, a follower of Jesus. Um, and in that way, it definitely possesses what you do. But then if you continue to choose to use a firearm and you use it and it kills somebody, even if it is legally justifiable by the laws of our land, we are not understanding the trauma that creates, not just for the, the family that lost someone, no, how, no matter how horrible the thing that they were doing was, but also for you, you still took someone's life and we don't think, talk about that enough. And that trauma, even though you have your people, let's say you it was uh, you did stop that situation at hand, you didn't you're still within that cycle of violence. And that's the dynamic possession, demonic possession that has you when you're in that cycle of violence and you can't get out, you're possessed and you cannot uh, escape. And so for me, it's the work of the church to come alongside people who are stuck in those cycles of violence, abuse, trauma, whatever it is. And to kind of put our hand in there and offer a way out. Mm, um, mm, and, yeah. and for me, this process of turning swords into plowshares is one of those ways we start to connect with people and start to seeing those. And I would have never had language for this 10 years ago when we started. Mm. It's only in working with survivors and victims of gun violence that they have helped inform me of what helps them in this trauma to continue talking about the loss of their loved one keeps them alive. Um, not, not one of their, the people who took them getting the death penalty that does nothing for them, but continuing to talk about the virtues of the person they lost, what they, how the life they brought continues to bring life to them and their community. That was incredibly wonderfully articulated and beautiful. Um, uh, Sam, uh, let's go ahead and get some of those Slido questions up in the comments. So we'll get to those in a second. I got a couple more questions for Mike, and then we'll head to the Slido questions. Um, what you just articulated is not just about certain people, but is also about us. Um, there's a part of what you just said that demands that we kind of take stock of our own hearts in many ways, right? Um and this kind of speaks to, you, you mentioned the third way of Jesus in there, which is uh, Walter Wink's, you know, wonderful phrase for a different way. And I was wondering how much of that, I mean, it's not just, I guess, for those of us who are on a certain path of trying to reduce gun violence, you know, have a particular political and philosophical ideology, some, some of what you said requires self-reflection as well. And I was just kind of curious if you could speak to, to that, because... Everything that you just said, I mean, that's within us as well. What what could possibly possess us? Yeah, the first part, our mission statement is to disarm hearts, forge peace, and cultivate justice. And disarm hearts was important for us to have first, that we ha we do have to take stock 
I, I often say I don't trust a pacifist who says that they would never kill somebody because they aren't mm. being honest with what they're capable of. They may be the best disciplined and have the best habits, and they likely will never kill someone. But if you can't get past that awareness of what we're capable of, um, then it's hard for me to work alongside you because it's hard for me to believe the depth of the rest of your work. Yeah. Um, and that that's part of it is that we have to understand that when we're putting in a situation where we might have, you know, lost a job, maybe a marriage or another significant relationship, and then a situation happens where all of our buttons are pushed, it's any one of us can, uh, quote unquote, lose it, right? We can, we can get more physical or more verbal than we would have ever been in our in any other kind of state, right? Even if we get asleep, we get to sleep for the night, we would wake up and not respond the way we did. And so it's so important for us to to understand what we're capable of, not just the bad, but also the good. And I think, you know, going back to thinking about compassion fatigue at the beginning, that can start to infiltrate just how we act in the little things. Um, so yeah, remembering both what the worst of what we're capable of and the best of what we're capable of. But that third way isn't the middle, right? It's not these two extremes and you have to find the middle. It's a different way of looking at the situation altogether. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing that you said that I thought was incredibly wonderful and profound is the word imagination, because that's the other piece of hope is that it's not just optimism, feeling good about the future. It's imagining conceiving this is walter brueggemann's um idea of the prophetic vision as well of imagining a future and then working towards that oh well see there you go well i already have a quote for this oh right where well, you go so uh, so let's uh finish this segment on imagination then i'll get to the uh, slido questions that were submitted uh page 261 the more we surround ourselves with plows the more we will find ourselves creating life the more we produce with plows, the more we see others as recipients of that sometimes actual produce. The more we surround ourselves with guns, the more we will see people, animals, and things as targets. Our imaginations work with the tools we have. What a wonderful quote. So share a little bit more about that idea and why and how imagination is so critical to the work that you do. Yeah, I'm going to read this quote directly from Brueggemann from the Prophetic Imagination because it's I don't have a genesis for the start of Raw Tools, but this is a quote that helped me take the next step to say, yeah, we can kind of start living into this. He says, we need to ask not whether it's realistic or practical or viable, but whether it's imaginable. We need to ask if our consciousness and imagination have been so assaulted and co-opted by the American consciousness that we have been robbed of the courage or power to think an alternative thought. Mm -hmm. And that's to what I was saying earlier. Like if we have that gun on our hip, it's hard for us to think of that alternative thought. And he says royal consciousness in the book, not American consciousness. So that's just an update to our our context that we are pulled kind of into this dominating empirical narrative of the day and saying that this is what we need to do to survive where God and Jesus and the church as a collective have the power to pull us out of those those um self-deprecating cycles like violence yeah and it one of the best things about building like a blacksmith network across the country and volunteers who help disable guns is their ability to imagine a new thing to make out of the guns i love our monthly blacksmith meetings 
where we say, hey, what are you doing? Or what can you do with this piece of the gun? We haven't figured out what to do with this yet. And another blacksmith says, hey, that looks like what I use to make this coat hanger. You can mm-hmm. make that with it. And we continue to find new things beyond just garden tools and jewelry and, and uh, what we say, other lo- lovely things in the book that it's you can make anything you want out of the remnants of broken guns. And you can involve the community in that space too. You can have survivors help cut them up. You can have survivors help reshape them. Um, you can have the community be a part of that as well. You can have them witness. You can create safe spaces for survivors to be witness to their community on the trauma and violence, the cycles that that they, they're begging us not to continue to fall into. Mm, yeah. So good. Um, one of the questions that came in from Anonymous, if there is someone who is not religious, how would you connect them to encourage a nonviolence as a way forward? Is religion necessary as a common ground? It's definitely not necessary. We do a lot of, um, I guess you could say, corporate or secular events where we invite, and you can use, you can have, um, when you involve the survivors, their spe- their stories often speak for themselves. So that's the context that I'm often find myself having these conversations. So I'm actually less and less in, I guess, what you would call normal places where you have these conversations because I'm already in a context of gun violence. Um, but there are great statistics out there. One I often move towards um, is that a gun in your home is at minimum three times more likely to be used against you or someone you love than against an intruder. So ask in those conversations, like ask them, how likely is it, are you to be home even? One, how likely is someone to even break into your house? But on top of that, how likely is it that you're to be home? Um, that's against kind of the narrative of an intruder. You don't want to be there when people are home. Um, so those chances already go down. Um, but then also um, speaking to people who have used firearms, whether they be um, military veterans or law enforcement who um, have been disaffected or have regretted having to even pull their firearm, whether they, they use the trigger or not. Those stories work really well too. Um, we often work with stories of people who um, have caused harm. They might be in prison, they might be out. Um, and they talk about the effect that it has on their lives uh, for pulling the trigger. So trying to stay informed around the trauma aspect of this from from all perspectives, but also leaning into the data context that is your community. Um, maybe it's suicide, maybe it's domestic violence, each one of our communities. So find out what that data is in your community and mm-hmm. use that in your relational dialogue. Yeah, that's that's really good. Um, Bob writes, U.S. gun advocates, when faced with positive examples from other countries of legislation, say they need guns to resist government tyranny. How do you respond? I'd like to see their example of when we've needed that. We live in, in, at the same time, though, that narrative often comes from people who say that this is the freest country in the world. We can do so much without needing to uh, get to the level of violence to buy our house, to drive our cars, to get to work, to ride the bus. We don't need to carry a gun to do any of those things. And in fact, more than 60% of our country do not own guns. A very small percentage of gun owners own almost half of our firearms. So most of us in this country already do life without firearms and a large percentage of them um, don't even want to kind of bring that firearm into their life. Yeah. So, well, um, 
Well, the rebuttal, I can imagine, and I think I've heard this before, is civil war, revolutionary war. These are kind of prime examples in American history where violence was, quote unquote, necessary or at least utilized in the liberation of the American state. So how would you respond to that particular rebuttal? You know, if if I'm in a faith space, I lean into our history of being in diaspora and exile and that God still preserves us as a collective. Um, don't allow that conversation to get to the individual because that's not what this is about. This is about our collective survival and health as a community. Um, and so I, it's easy to get pulled into to that individual space. What are you going to do if, if the, the government comes to your door? Um, and it's, and it's really less, doesn't happen much in, in that kind of community dialogue that using that communal, communal language. So, um, at the end of it, for me personally, I'm not going to kill for someone, but I'll die for someone. And if that is that, that is, then I choose, uh, my death over someone else's life if that makes sense we had a little bit of an inter internet interruption you said i'm not going to kill for somebody i'm going to die for somebody and then we lost you for about five seconds there could you repeat what you mentioned yeah and so connecting that if we do that as a collective if we're not just mm -hmm. out there individually dying but we're saying as groups that we are not going to do this i mean the mennonites my faith tradition have a history of uh, conscientious objection to war, which is connected to this kind of like international conflict or even regional conflict. If we're talking about civil war, that large groups of people against other large groups of people that says this is not the way forward. And so this is leaning into this is probably something we need to cultivate more of is how we look at collective nonviolence and how it works. Um, there's a lot of great um, books out there that talk more about this. Um, Ron Sider does a lot there about how nonviolence works, that, that nonviolent in, in, nonviolence in international conflicts has a longer lasting effect of positive change than violent conflict like a revolutionary war or civil war. I think we're still living in the violence of the civil war when we're talking about this today as a, with the Black Lives Matter movement and, and indigenous lives and how they're deeply undervalued. I don't think that that's something that is just 200 years ago. That's something we're still living today. And we we're still in that cycle of violence. So I don't, violence hasn't solved that problem. Like we think it did when the civil war ended. Yeah, that's so good. Um, two last questions and then we'll let you go. What are, um, some ways in which, well, first of all, are you coming to California anytime soon? <laughs> is that, is that uh, on the docket? Southern California might be on the docket in the new year. Um, that's still penciled in. It's not finalized. Um, but other than that, right now, we are starting to plan out our 2023. Well, if there are any other churches or organizations, institutions in Northern California that would love to partner with Spark, I, I think, and uh, via media, we would probably be very interested in uh, captivating your, your travels out here. Because I think in addition to the work that you're doing, it's kind of the experience and the training that you also provide when you when you do those activities that I think is incredibly mm -hmm. formative for the shaping of our, our minds and our philosophies, our spiritualities. Um, is there any way that our um, audience can support, other than buying the book, uh, other ways that you need support or help in, in the work that you're doing? Yeah, you can go to rawtools.org. You can buy the book along with the items that we make. The best way to know when tools are for sale is to subscribe to our newsletter at rawtools.org. We release them in batches 
and they're often sold out within hours. Um, so if you want to get in on that, get to the newsletter. But even more so, be open about talking about this in your community, whether it directly affects raw tools or not. I don't care as much about that. I want to get people active in, in talking about this. Um, there's some resources we've made, a loaded conversation with Mennonite Central Committee. It's just a, a helpful dialogue guide um, to hold these conversations in your church. And then another one, if you want to create a nonviolent plan, a practice or policy within your church, uh, Fear Not is a curriculum that just came out this year to talk about how to respond to active violence in your in your congregation. It's not always going to be a shooter. Yeah. Uh, Pastor Danielle, push hell away. Yes. Um, <laughs> Stacy, we're still living through the violence of the Civil War. Wow. Yeah. Uh, this has been in incredible, Mike. Uh, so, so many. We, we didn't even get to everything that you mentioned in the book that is just so helpful and insightful. You are a Mennonite pastor slash Amish pastor slash. No, Amish. No, uh, no Amish. Maybe yeah. I need to cut this to get that myth gone. <laughs> That's right. Um, there are people in our church, in our audience, in our communities that are very tired, um, weary of the violence. It was just painful as a church. I know you know this. I'm preaching to the choir to go through year after year after year of needing to pause for a moment because of another shooting, because of um, another act of violence. And, and it's just been weary. As a pastor, I'd love for you to close us, if you would be so kind, maybe with a short pastoral word of encouragement, of hope, of inspiration, mm -hmm. imagination to our audience um, from a, a profound place of authority, meaning somebody who lives this, walks this, and has trudged through the dark places and will uh, let you close us with that word, if you'd be so kind. Yeah. Lord, uh, thanks for this time together. I pray that you um, help us understand who we are, help us to empower us to break the soil um, that we feel might be uh, corrupted, that we feel might um, be something we continue to walk over and not notice what grows there. We ask that you give us the tools to break that soil, to bring new life. Uh, we understand that we are in this for the reconciliation of all things and that uh, we want to follow you on that path and we want to use the tools that you showed us to use to do this, that we don't exploit others, that we move forward um, with life at the center and uh, with with our arms held together, that we do this in embrace of each other. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, thank you for joining us. The book, Beating Guns, Hope for People Who Are Weary of Violence, the organization, Raw Tools. Mike Martin, thank you so much, not only for your time, but for your work and for the inspiration and the imagination that you're giving to all of us. We so appreciate it. And we just wish you all the very best. We are hopeful for some California visit, potentially. Um, may your tribe increase um, and continue. We, I, I, I um, am very hesitant and sad to say that this will continue, unfortunately. We still live in a very lengthy, strong, robust gun culture, violence culture, but people like you and the work that you're doing is advancing a pretty profound, radical, revolutionary change for which we are 
tremendously, tremendously grateful. So thank you so much, Mike. Uh, thank you, Kevin. Thanks everyone for having us and being a part of this conversation. It was a great joy to be a part of and hopefully we cross paths with many of you in the future here. Yes, that would be wonderful. Thank you again, everybody. Have a wonderful night and we'll see you next time for our next conversation.